Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to spring. We finally have some nice weather this weekend uh, ahead here in Wisconsin. And we have our full panel to celebrate spring. Jorna Taylor is here with us. Jorna is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna, welcome. Good morning yes. and good afternoon to our radio listeners. There you go. It's always nice. It's a sunny day here in Milwaukee, Finally. which we have not had a lot of. And Robert Craig is with us. Robert is the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, welcome. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> so... Look, uh, I said it's spring, it's nice, and we're going to start by debriefing the spring elections. Uh, we are also going to talk a bit about health care. We have uh, both the uh, Ryan Care 2.0, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about Badger Care. Uh, we're going to talk state budget, talk about the recount bill, and also talk a little Neil Gorsuch uh, today on the podcast. So let's get started. We're going to debrief a little bit about the spring election uh, I think, as everybody knows, uh, Tony Evers won in a landslide. Uh, uh, it was a, a complete landslide. Evers won 70 out of 72 counties, only losing uh, two of the wow counties, uh, Washington and Waukesha, which we know are some of the most Republican and conservative counties in the country. Um, and he essentially uh, cleaned the clock of Lowell Holtz. Um, obviously, uh, we've talked about it before, Holtz was not a particularly strong candidate, Ted, <laughs> which is an understatement. Uh, a number of uh, problems throughout his campaign that made him extremely vulnerable. But uh, there were also a ton of local elections. And Jorna, there were some very good stories coming out of these local elections, one of them being there were a lot of really outstanding progressive women candidates that won. And... Uh, Emerge, uh, one of our partners, uh, we know played an important role in helping prepare them. Let, talk more about that. Yeah, so I really, it, what, what's really important coming out is that uh, women are putting their name on the ballot and they're stepping up in a place where I believe it's something like, um, you know, the, the lack of parity on even the Madison City Council, which elected its um, parity member, Arvina Martin, a friend of mine, to uh, a Native American as well, to make parity on the Madison City Council, right? So we're not talking about, you know, far-reaching places where there aren't women on local school boards and city councils. We're talking about even Madison. And, and Jorna, we've talked about the Milwaukee City Council. We don't want to, I can't. <laughs> How bad listen, it is. <laughs> listen, that's, that's for next year. Um, but I have to give a shout out to my friend, Aaron Forrest, the executive director of Emerge. She worked her tail off and she supported, uh, there were 16 Emerge candidates across the state running for local office and 14 of those 16 women won their election on Tuesday night. So, um, you know, hats off to all of these women for stepping up and putting their names out there and, and really running some terrific races. And so I'm glad we've got some more progressive women across the state to help us out. Including here in Milwaukee, we elected our first uh, female Hmong judge. Yep. And this is a really impressive story because she uh, was not born here and was not a native speaker and has, I mean, in less than two decades, uh, uh, turned herself into the first and, judge, which is incredibly and impressive. And when my, Matt, when you say our first, you mean our country's Our country's, first. yes. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> I believe she's like the second elected Hmong judge, but like right. the first female Hmong judge and. and Let's be honest, she's very young, and so this is incredibly impressive and very exciting. Um, want to also uh, talk about uh, 
here in Milwaukee, uh, big news. We've talked in the past that uh, Tony Baez, one of our members, was running for school board here in uh, a predominantly Latino seat that uh, actually Tony played a role in helping in the redistricting. Um, and I want to give a big shout out to our organizing cooperative members in Axiom Ciudadana, which turned out tons and tons of people uh, for GOTV and had been uh, getting folks out every weekend uh, since the primary. Uh, we believe we knocked over 5,000 doors for Tony Baez. Uh, and so we're very proud of that work and very excited that a member who's in our organizing cooperative uh, ran for office and, and won. Uh, also, uh, Larry Miller, one of our organizing cooperatives, our cooperative members also won re-election to the school board. So uh, we want to congratulate them and, of course, thank all of the members uh, who worked very hard uh, to get uh, Tony Baez and Larry Miller elected. So before we move off of the spring elections, I wanted to get Jorna and Robert's thoughts about some of, about the spring election overall. Um, early on, we had a discussion about the fact that there was no progressive, democratic, whatever you want to call it, Supreme Court candidate. And there was a lot of recriminations, uh, certainly within the party and you know broadly about the idea that um, we were going to have a conservative Supreme Court candidate go unchecked. Um, and what it did seem to create, though, was there was no real activity, obviously. No big money came in on the Supreme Court side. And, and Lowell Holtz, obviously, was shooting himself in the foot or maybe... More, Both feet. Maybe the head. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so it really kind of kept the field clear in some ways for Tony Evers to not have to face lots of money that would have come in if there had been a competitive Supreme Court race um, ginning up turnout. Um, not necessarily saying that this is a great model, but just uh, thoughts on what what can we take away from this election? I know there are a lot of people, you know, very excited saying, wow, massive victory. I mentioned, started by saying how many counties he won in. But what does it all kind of really mean? And, and what should we walk away from this election? What are the lessons learned, Jorna? Well, I certainly don't want to take away um, anything from Tony Evers' victory at all, because it was outstanding. Um, what I, I think in large part also happened is that Republicans didn't think that Lowell Holtz was going to be the one that came through the primary. Yeah. Uh, he's a special candidate, and I think that it would have been, there would have been more money put forward um, had his opponent that I'm now blanking on his name. It's so... Yeah, it's past. already happened so long ago. I can't even <laughs> um, remember his name. You know, but he he was their chosen chosen one essentially, and so I think we would have seen more dark money come in at that point. Um, you know, as for not having somebody on the state supreme court ballot, yeah, I, I think it may have suppressed turnout a little bit. But these are such low turnout elections to begin with. I don't know that that's that we can judge just based on that alone. You know, I don't ha actually have the turnout number right in front of me, but I. I'm sure it was lower than the 20% 20, 20 that I think the previous um, elections this cycle had. And, and I'm talking about the four-year cycle. Um, so clearly, I think turnout was was down. It'll, we'll, we'll have to take a look deeper into the numbers. 16%. So we were probably down about 4 5% for a normal uh, spring election this cycle. So I'm saying every four years. Um, so, so clearly, we did have a suppression of turnout. There was very little communication out there for the elections. In fact, 
you know, even when we were posting on Facebook or or, or doing uh, outreach to our members about the election, we had many people saying, oh, thank you for reminding me. I forgot there was an election. I didn't know. So, and these are some fairly well, or at least reasonably connected people. So, obviously, this election really did suffer from a lack of uh, a big ticket uh, uh, showstopper that was going to increase the turnout. But, as you said, we should take nothing away from the campaign Tony Evers ran um, I actually want to give him a shout out for really talking about the the, the disparities we have um, uh, in terms of the education of, of, of communities of color and how right now African-Americans in particular have a huge disparity in gaps. And Evers spent, spent time actually talking about this, not just in Milwaukee or Racine or uh, all over the state and really talking also personally about, you know, you know how he, he grew up and this was an area that like he didn't have any competency in and it's something that he's had to work on and so i want to give him uh credit for going around and having this conversation because it is a critical conversation and we do uh, need to address these disparities both in education and we've talked before about the economy and incarceration so um uh, i think that that is something that should definitely be pointed out robert any any thoughts from you Okay, I, I just think that these low-tone-out spring elections uh, don't mean much, quite frankly. Um, at least the state superintendent race without a Supreme Court race got the, the kind of attention it deserved, but there was only one qualified candidate on the ballot, and Tony did a very good job. Uh, it still, you know, obviously deeply disappointed people that we didn't even put up a Supreme Court candidate. And whoever we is, it doesn't have to be the partisan Democratic Party, it's a nonpartisan race, but the whole legal community needs to be able to put up a candidate. But the problem is is that the system was never designed for big money campaigns that required you to raise millions of dollars in order to be competitive. And so all of the highly qualified candidates out there didn't want to run. And so we've allowed the dark money groups, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, essentially to take over our state Supreme Court, which means they're in charge of deciding what the laws mean. So if you can both decide what the laws are, by gerrymandering the legislature and have a completely illegitimate state legislature, and then also as a backstop, be able to have the, the people who interpret the laws in a partisan way, uh, then what's much, there's not much left of democracy, quite frankly. And a right-wing judge or an originalist, the way they describe it, is one who always finds a way to make a constitutional argument that whatever the far right wants to do is what was intended by the Wisconsin Constitution, or as we'll talk about later, the national constitution. Now, I think those points are obviously uh, very well t uh, well said, Robert. Um, and again, uh, one of the points you make is this whole idea of we have all this large, dark money. And we mentioned last week as it related to uh, Tim Cullen, I think in the future we need to be also recruiting candidates who are going to appeal to mass amounts of our base who could actually raise smaller donations so that any of our candidates at the top of the ticket aren't just completely beholden to large progressive or Democratic donors um, in the way that uh, Tim Cullen certainly was talking about it last time. And I think that applies to this too. And, and that's also on us, again, to start to organize and figure out how we're able to capitalize and get more small dollar donations uh, into our candidates at the top of the ticket and, 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 down, and down the ballot. Which, so, which aren't uh, all just about those annoying email clutter. Doomed, right. failed. Yeah, exactly. I need a dollar now or it's all over. We will be back shortly. 
Welcome back. We are going to switch gears here and talk healthcare. It is impossible not to escape healthcare. It's truly one of the top issues going, both uh, nationally, but also uh, we have a state level uh, component to talk about this week. So the big news, and again, we record on Thursday. It looks like today, uh, it's this uh, Ryan Trump Care 2.0 is, is going to stall, uh, at least before they go on their uh, Easter vacation. They've been unable to come to a deal in spite of, it sounds like, some Trump continuing to be fairly heavy-handed and really putting pressure on them. It sounds like, Robert, today on Thursday, there's going to be something that'll happen in committee that will uh, deal with the high-risk high insurance pools. But it sounds like this is going to continue to go forward, and we need to keep up the pressure on these folks over break. Tell us more, Robert. Well, there was major pressure from the White House, and uh, Vice President Pence has been dispatched as the special emissary. Hopefully without any women near him. Well... <laughs> They've stopped dispatching Trump, apparently. <laughs> right. Well, Pence actually may know uh, the details of the bill. Why don't they just get Trump on the phone? That, <laughs> that works out well. And so they were trying to push right again. So what they were doing is they, they're, but they're, they have a new idea to try to not lose the quote-unquote moderates, and that was that they would, rather than getting rid of essential health benefits, which means what health insurance has to cover— uh, that they would give states the option to apply for waivers to not have uh, essential health benefits. And furthermore, they'd throw in a sweetener, and that is that states could apply for waivers uh, to allow insurance companies to charge people with health conditions anything they want, a lot more. Right now, there's, it, you can't do that. It's just the, the, the insurance is only based on, on age. Right and eight, and it's limited how much they can charge for age, uh, more for age, and so it's pre-existing condition discrimination again, and so that of course that came unwound because as they were trying to get the Freedom Caucus on the bottom line, the what they're now calling the Coverage Caucus uh, started rebelling. So then they that so today that is Thursday, uh, widespread press reports that they're going to plan to create federal high-risk pools or money for that. And that'll supposedly take care of all of the all of the sick people, which it really won't. And therefore, they can go do this other thing they need for the Freedom Caucus, and that's where it stands. And they're gonna go home to the recess and face their constituents with uh, maybe not as big as a major train wreck as they had two weeks ago, but uh, another derailing because there were widespread press reports earlier this week that they were gonna get a vote uh, before the Easter recess, and oh. clearly that's not happening. Oh, Robert, those were erroneous. It, it, it wasn't gonna happen, Jorna. I, well, I have two immediate thoughts. Um, one, Republicans are jerks. <laughs> I'm going to stand by that statement. Not all, but, you know, many. Two, I'm glad I'm not in Congress because this is a, you know, this is a disaster for them. Um, but three, this doesn't look so good for our favorite person, the speaker. Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan's not looking so shiny like he used to. Um, in fact, a, a, a Quinnipiac Q poll came out earlier this week, and it appears that only 28% of people view the good speaker favorably. That's a that's a pretty um, dismal number, if you ask me. Well, he's be... doing better than his health care bill, which is a 17%. <laughs> so there is a silver lining. There's, he's running 11 time. points ahead of his health care bill. That must be really Sad. hard on Paul. He, he does very much much want to be liked so this well this, this and he's already devastating news absolutely and he's already setting up the you know the tax reform um overhaul to 
to be lengthier. I mean, he's he's trying to lower expectations now after this disaster and debacle of a healthcare debate and all of that to say, well, you know, it's going to take longer than we expect and blah blah blah. Well, and it and you know, it, it's affecting Wall Street because a lot of those morons thought that they were going to get a huge tax Ouch, windfall Robert. out of the Trump administration, <laughs> well, they were. And so they're building having a bubble, Ouch. right? Like what? We're not. Oh, so stocks started going down when the healthcare debacle began. And let's talk about. Uh, quite aside from the immorality of throwing 24 million people off health care, right? They're playing with the one thing that they know they can't play with. That is, pre-existing condition discrimination is such an outrage that even Republicans say they want to outlaw it. And that, oh, we don't want to change that part of the Affordable Care Act. They've been saying that for years and years and years. And now, in order to try to get the Freedom Caucus, that's exactly what they're doing. And they somehow think they're going to hold this together. So it is amazing. Once they took, you know, they probably should have stuck with the repeal it and fix it later because once they actually were required to provide a plan, even the brilliant policy guru, Paul Ryan, this is what he came up with. Yeah, I just, I want to remind our listeners, it is very, very important during this break over the next couple of weeks that you continue to contact your Congress members. And so that includes uh, senators, but also your House representatives. And remember, this is a, we're, we're sort of headed down the same path again. We have... Basically, the White House and Ryan really effectively appealing to the Freedom Caucus, and so removing all of these uh, protections against pre-existing discrimination. It is the calls to everybody else outside of the Freedom Caucus that also helped stall that bill. So it is critical, since the bill, as we know, is only going to get worse in order to appease the Freedom Caucus, that we continue to contact our members of Congress about the pre-existing ban and very clear, no on any any new revival of Trump Care, Ryan Care. Uh, we got to get those calls in, keep the pressure on, because it really messes with the dynamic of trying to find that balance between well, the Freedom Caucus and, as Robert said, the uh, whatever we want to call them, moderates or coverage caucus. The pressure is what's done it. There are some right-wing pundits who want to deny that and right-wing talk show hosts, but it is the pressure since the election that has put a spotlight on what they're doing so they couldn't do it in the dead of night and get away with it. And yes. so what, it, what really all that was required, given how bad their policy was, is for everyone to be watching. And that's what the protests have done. And the average staffer or member of Congress can't even explain why you would do any of these things. Now, there's another front, Matt, that we should mention, and that is, of course, the right-wing crusade against healthcare continues with Scott Walker getting national headlines for wanting a waiver from the Trump administration to drug test people on Badger Care. Yes. And uh, we were quoted in the Washington Post that wrote a pretty scathing story about it. Of course, I guess they're the enemy, according to Donald Trump, so we shouldn't listen to them. Uh, <laughs> but And this week, the, uh, the, the Medicaid director for Governor Walker was uh, trying to defend it in a hearing and claiming it was constitutional. Uh, meanwhile, and this is where us def- defending healthcare comes down to citizens, not the big interests, right? You have the, the lobbyist for the hospital association, Erica Borgerding, saying in essence that Wisconsin should be rewarded for its unique approach to Medicaid and it's unfair we're not getting more Medicaid money. Well, guess what? It's real easy. Take the money, right? <laughs> so we're going to now blame the federal government somehow for not for not get, allowing Walker to like violate the terms of the money that is covering everyone up to a certain income level on Badger Care. Yeah, Robert. Alternative facts. <laughs> but Robert, you raised something that 
I want to put a point on, and, and I'm really glad that we, we were out this week getting out front of this, but this is their approach to, to how to deal with uh, chemical dependency is completely wrong, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. We're talking about Medicaid, right, where a lot of folks, it's the only way that they can get access to health care. Health care, dr- uh, drug addiction is a health problem and absolutely requires health care in order to be able to deal with it. And the notion that you would drug test and then remove health care from people who, abs- who actually need it to address a health problem well, it's, they're, it's just so wrong. They're denying that. They're saying they would give them treatment, Matt. So they're claiming this is going to help, that they're trying to be helpful. Now, I would think that others, like people who get WEDEC tax breaks, would want the help as well and to take the drug test. Maybe all of the everyone who gets a home interest deduction might want the help and of, of a forced drug test. I mean, this is the help. So it stigmatizes people. Who, low-income people cannot afford health care on their own because middle-income and upper-middle-income people mostly can't either, right? It makes it a moral failing. They're not working. They're, they're taking drugs, which is, is not the case, right? They're, there's no not greater drug abuse than the rest of the population. And then it's uh, a misunderstanding of what it is. It's a public health issue. We need to be offering treatment, making it more robust, having public service announcements that the free treatment is available, and even if you're being of a problem, you can do it. So the, if you want to have a real... Uh, a drug program, you would treat it like a flu epidemic or any other kind of medical crisis. But instead, they're treating it like some 19th century moral issue, which sets us back decades in terms of of, of, of public even understanding of what of what of what substance use is all about. Well, I just want to say I don't feel like uh, that Walker, Governor Walker, has had a real great track record in. Um, in transparency on his motives or that his motives are good by any means, right? This is uh, this is designed to, once again, hurt poor people. Well, the other thing is, this, this, this comes out, this is out on the week that the, that the legislature passes uh, 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 a heroin, opioid mm-hmm. uh, bill that's putting more money into opioid treatment and starting to actually talk about it as a, as a health issue, right? And, and, and Nigren and others deserve credit for starting that conversation. We, of course, believe the amount of money in there is absolutely not adequate to fight what they've described as a crisis, but at least they're starting to talk about it and, and, and legislate as though it is a healthcare crisis. So Walker, having this come out, the same time they're talking about how we need to actually deal with this as a health crisis just shows the dysfunction and how this is all about politics and it's all about Walker re-election for yes. 2018 and basically just beating up on poor people in order to get re-elected. The scapegoat and, and yeah. demagogue, right, exactly. And what's next? Scarlet letters for unwed mothers, you think? Yes. So, and, and you mentioned uh, the Badger Care money. LFB this week uh, came out and with new projections, and the state will uh, be losing up to nearly $700 million by June of 2020. And so, AP says we've lost $1.7 billion through June of 2019. Yeah. So, it, obviously, this is the wrong approach. We ought to be actually doing Badger Care for All and expanding Medicaid for everybody. Uh, not only is it a, a cost-effective program, it has excellent coverage, and so that's where we ought to be going. And we'll talk more about the idea that we ought to be looking at Badger Care for All and uh, down the road. But we got to get out of here for this break. Welcome back. We're gonna we're gonna talk a little more state politics here. The state budget 
is in its construction. We mentioned that last week and talked about the Joint Finance Committee, which is the committee that oversees the budget in terms of it will take Walker's budget and sort of rewrite it. And then that budget will go on to the Senate and the Assembly. And so the Joint Finance Committee is out on its roadshow this week. It was it debuted in Platteville. And uh, then on Wednesday, we were in West Allis. And lots of folks have been turning out and uh, giving, their, gi- giving the legislators a piece of their mind, to say the least. And in particular... Um, a lot of folks turning out from education. We really want to give a shout out to all the educators and supporters of public education uh, who got out in, in these first two days of the hearings and really, really made their voices heard about the importance of public education. Um, and a number of other issues are at stake in this budget. And we're gonna those joint finance committee hearings will continue uh, next week. Um, actually, it's in two weeks. If I, I think we're off for a week. Our next, the next one. Oh wait, no, excuse me. There's one this week on Friday. So uh, in 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 Berlin, and then uh, in two weeks we'll be back up on Tuesday, April 18th at Spooner. Wednesday, April 19th in Ellsworth, and Friday, April 21st in Marinette. Um, these are really important opportunities for people to get out and, ex- and, and express themselves on their issue. And again, if you can't make any of these hearings uh, but would like to have either written or uh, video testimony submitted, please send that to me at matt.brusky, B-R-U-S-K-Y, at citizenactionwi.org, and we'll make sure that that testimony gets submitted. So obviously, please, folks, get out. Uh, testify, make sure that the legislators are, are, are hearing from you. Robert? Yeah, and I want to encourage people to participate, though I still want to say that this is not exactly the greatest system uh, of democratic deliberation. Really, Robert? Hmm. And that if you've ever been to one, it's worth going to see what they're like, but they're a huge horse and pony show, huge crowds of people uh, waiting to testify. Uh, early on, the legislators are pretending to listen, but after a while, a lot of them really aren't. Um, <laughs> And so, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a you, minute. Do you think they're listening? No, I don't. I think the Democrats are listening, but I don't want to compare okay. this to a horse and pony show here, uh, Robert. See. I thought it was we about paid the... rapt attention to our shows. Okay, I thought so it was what about did the you politicians th- listen, oh, conservative politicians goodness. listening part. And you uh, really, the mobilization... you're, you're poking Jorna directly with like the horse a, and okay. pony. Okay, right sorry, bad metaphor. It's like a horse jumper show <laughs> or something. Go, Jorna, I'd go to every one if it was the horse and pony show. I would, but, absolutely, uh... and I would win. But, but uh, and you see, you see the big mobilizations in the areas where there, where the state government spends the most money, education, which has been big this week, healthcare, uh, which has been big this week, transportation. Probably the one area that's huge amount of spending that you don't see as much mobilization um, is in uh, corrections, where we obviously need massive corrections reform. I think people need to participate, but I think this is more designed to, to, for the majority to say, we listen to the people and then go forward and doing what they want to do. Occasionally, they'll find a couple things in the testimony that they use to justify something so they can further validate the process. Uh, but the idea that this budget was somehow drawn up in consultation with the people is absurd. And uh, a big shout out to the Wisconsin Public Education Network. 
Uh, if you've spent any time watching the hearings on uh, Wisconsin Eye, which again we recommend, you'll you cannot have missed the green T-shirts and all the folks uh, testifying. And so, really good job by them in terms of organizing, and of course, all the educators around the state. I know the MTA was heavily involved in getting uh, folks out to the the uh, West Dallas hearings. So uh, that work does not go unnoticed. Uh, uh, great job. Um, and again, these hearings continue, and please make sure you're able to get out and testify. So, uh, Robert, I wanted to get your thoughts, because I know we've had conversations about this bill that is the Republicans are trying to move to go after the recount. And this, of course, got a lot of attention when uh, Jill Stein paid for a recount of our uh, November election. And, of course, this got the Republicans all very upset and trying to restrict what apparently hadn't been a problem for years and years. So they're pushing through or attempting to push through a great restriction of the recount. Uh, your thoughts? Well, it's the kind of legislating that really we both parties should avoid. Whoever's in the majority, like just passing a law to change the thing you didn't like that just happened. Uh, so they didn't like John Doe investigation of Scott Walker. So let's get rid, get rid of John of Doe investigations for no politicians. Didn't like unions, Act 10. Get rid right. of them. Well, that, that was more of a long-term strategy. Uh, so I put that in a different category, but I take your point. Uh, and so in this case, they didn't like the Jill Stein recount. And so therefore, we're going to become one of the only states that requires you to be the candidate who lost by less than 1% to call for a recount, which is what this does. Um, with all of the new information about the theoretical possibility of hacking, it seems highly problematic uh, that the only per, uh, rec only a recount could occur if the candidate that lost came within 1% and asked for it. And so we really could have a situation where a candidate loses by 1.1%, and there's, 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 and there's a real problem that maybe the election was hacked and nothing, no recount can occur. That's what this sets up. But they don't care. They just want to prevent this person, this Jill Stein and the Green Party, from having any power if they pay for it uh, to force a recount. So, I mean, I'm going to say something that will be controversial with oh, our no. listeners here. No, I know I no, never Jordan, do that. I, I can't disagree with <laughs> the, you know, Jill Stein anti-recount sentiment. But um, I agree with Robert that this could set a very incredibly dangerous precedent and um, standard for our elections in Wisconsin. Now, look, like, I don't think in general that our elections are tampered with, right? I think we have really great election officials. There are some issues. There are absolutely some issues. But I think that on the whole, our elections are run um, as efficiently and as effectively as possible. However, we are all human, and even machines, even in this Futurama that we live in, can make some mistakes and can be hacked and all of these different things that we're seeing play out at a federal level with the allegations. So um, this is a really dangerous bill, and we need to we need to stop this. Well, there's the chair of the University of Michigan, uh, Computer Science Department. I think his last name is Haberman or something close to that who has written extensively as a blog that He's hacking, got a blog? Wow. Well, a blog, a blog that's attended to in this, in this oh. field, Matt, okay. and as progressives, we're interested in knowledge and thought, right? So We got a blog. Um, that hacking is extremely possible because this notion that all of the voting machines are not on the Internet is not a protection at all because the voting machines have to receive the ballot and the ballot is sent to them over the internet uh, and then loaded in through a jump drive. And so that's where the malicious software would be. So it's not been proven this happened, but it is 
uh, with with the hacking that's going on from foreign governments, it's highly possible, and we need the mechanism if we if there's real evidence of that to be able to do a recount and investigate it. So I agree with Jorna. This is not to besmirch all of the incredible uh, clerks all over the state of Wisconsin that do a great job. We're talking about something that they wouldn't be able to control here. And again, uh, it's fascinating. I, I'll bet you if there's a if it goes the other way and a Republican loses by just over 1% and they think there's a problem, like some fake voter fraud, like photo ID or whatever else they have it, how it dis- haven't disenfranchised people, uh, then the, their state Supreme Court will be invalidating the law in time for them to have their recount. Yeah, look, um, by the way, I, we're still recovering from the trauma and the complete horrible disaster and gridlock that happened to the state with that last recount. It was a total nightmare. Oh, that's right. It wasn't it didn't cost us anything um please we're we're there's there's no problem here and you mentioned robert these new voting machines and clearly there's always going to be a concern around the integrity as since for for the reasons you mentioned but i want to point out senator mark miller actually had a really good comment about this and this is ultimately fundamentally what i think is important when you deny the ability of citizens or interested groups from verifying the results of an election you create the perception that something's being hidden and that perception is incredibly uh i can't even speak today is is really bad for democracy right if if you don't have you know faith that there's integrity in the system and so uh, we we shouldn't be doing anything that would mess with that, especially when there is no real problem. The other thing I want to mention is, look, we, Jorna's right. We, for the most part, have a very good system, but we still have a system that is so fractured, right? It's carried out by all these municipalities. So it's it, it leaves it, again, it gets back to perception that you could have problems, right? We went through this with the Waukesha clerk a number of years ago with Kloppenberg, right? Mm-hmm. And we have all these municipalities that, quite frankly, do it a little bit different, right? And they're given that freedom. That is one and, issue that may need to be addressed, more uniformity, I think. But the uh, the, the other... Uh, yeah, Robert, you are going to say something? Yeah, and look, look what's happening on redistricting, right? And the lawsuit where the map's going to be drawn up if they're drawn up at all in secret by hundred thousand dollar, you know, lawyers from Chicago, right, Jorna? So it's certainly not just a hypothetical thing that things might go on in secret uh, that are untoward. It's exactly how the gerrymandered districts that create an illegitimate legislature were drawn up and are being drawn up again because they're losing in court. Well, we'll see. We'll see if this bill goes anywhere. Uh, Speaker Robin Voss has already spoken out and doesn't believe we need this and said that the system worked as intended. So either Robin Voss has some clarity or maybe some of the special interests who might have their right to go and do a recount against a Democratic candidate got into Robin Voss's ear and told them, hey, uh, this would impact our ability to pay and fund for a recount for if it happened to you guys. So there you go. We agree with the Koch brothers, maybe. <laughs> so we got to get out of here, but we'll continue to track that. Issue. Welcome back. So we are going to stay on state politics for a bit here before we go to Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Weedek is back in the news. Uh, we haven't talked about Weedek in a month or two here. Um, but again, we have a company 
uh, in Appleton that is laying off 390 people. And this is uh, a Jansport. Uh, they, they make uh, apparel for, for Jansport. And uh, the company has be- received resources uh, from WEDEC to create jobs, retain jobs. And uh, obviously that is not going to happen. So yet again, we have another company that WEDEC is giving money to that can't seem to actually produce jobs. Robert? Well, they're laying off 400 people, so I would say that they're not creating jobs. And this is like college apparel, so all the fine badger wear you see. You've seen the Jansport name, for example. And so I, I, Amanda Stuck, who's a co-op member in Northeast Wisconsin Citizen Action State Representative from Appleton, is, was very outspoken about this and is asking why is it that WEDEC seems to have such a great knack for picking companies that are about to lay off a bunch of people uh, when you actually give them money to create jobs. And it, it calls into question the entire, I'll put in quote, strategy of WEDEC, which is non-existent because their current position is whoever applies will, get, will, will give money out to, basically, loans, grants, tax credits, et cetera, without any strategy as to what we're trying to build and where, for what reason. And of course, and then, of course, apparently no ability to assess uh, these companies for their stability or anything like that. And then you get this, what's a clawback situation. So they're saying that they're going to claw back, but how much they've actually clawed back from the whole string of companies that have outsourced jobs and taken the money or simply downsized and taken the money is unclear because they are less than transparent. Now, they are suggesting that they've clawed back $5 million And, you know, of course, we have been supportive of the idea that you should be able to claw back money. But as you mentioned, Robert, if you don't actually have a real strategy around creating jobs and the kind of jobs you want and where, uh, this is just going to continue to happen. And we're, of course, going to continue to keep an eye on WEDEC and speak out. But we got to change topics before we get out of here. We have to at least talk a little bit about the nuclear option in the Senate. So, Jorna, I know you have often wanted to be a senator, and <laughs> and uh, you've talked. Right. In fact, I believe before we had uh, before we started recording today, we were talking about your plans to run for Senate when Tammy decides she's ready and, to retire. Isn't the Senate a horse and pony show? <laughs> so, so they are not that pretty. So. We have this week, we found out that there will be at least 41 uh, Democrats who are going to stay strong in terms of a filibuster against Gorsuch. And so we're recording this morning. Four that are not. <laughs> we, will, we will just sort of ignore them at the moment. Uh, the four horsemen, uh, the four headless horsemen, maybe. <laughs> of the apocalypse. <laughs> of the apocalypse. Um, but nonetheless, we have enough uh, in terms of to, to filibuster the vote and the, uh, the Senate Republicans, as of Thursday morning, are basically saying we are definitely going to go to the nuclear option. So here we are. We're, you know, we're going to basically blow up Senate rules on one of the more important things the Senate does uh, around uh, Neil Gorsuch. Jorna? Got to get those right-wing judges in there as quick as we can. Yes, yes. So I think that Jorna's hit the nail right on the head uh, in that this is about the conservative attitude towards power, which is grab it all and take it all when you can. So we saw that with Act 10. We see what they're trying to do in healthcare. But think about this. They create a new constitutional rule. I love how the originalists do that and say that uh, the fact that uh, Justice Scalia passed away within the last year, even though it was like nine months uh, before the end of President Obama's term, that he no longer has constitutional authority to appoint Supreme Court justices, and they just sat on Merrick Garland. And now they're going to go and not just uh, put through a conservative justice, but an ultra, arch-right conservative 
who can present himself as highly qualified because he's smart, and as I said before, the definition of a very smart ultra-right uh, justice is one who can twist the Constitution intellectually every which way to make it turn out in, a, in an early 21st century right-wing way. So it's amazing how his logic machine always comes out with the same answer. Women don't have any control of their own bodies, right? Uh, corporations are almost always right, and individuals and swing people. them are in the wrong and have to pay legal fees, etc. I just think it's a fascinating—this is always fascinating for me to watch— how we can twist the rules of these supposedly esteemed governing bodies, right? And how the right is significantly better than the left at doing this. And that's how they can pass all of these, to use a Robert word, draconian public policies and nominees and different things through legislatures and through the Senate and the House is by twisting the rules. And it's, it's crazy to watch. And that's what we end up with. Well, this isn't just sort of like any old rule. This is right. like this right. is something you learn about in high school, right? And you don't learn a whole lot about government in high school, but this is one of those that you learn about, right? About the Supreme Court, checks and balances. <laughs> thinking you learned about the nuclear how, option no, in high school. But, I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I certainly the I filibuster like and 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 that as it relates to Supreme Court confirmations is something that is very well understood. It's a critical part of the checks and balances because uh, otherwise you could have, as we're going to after probably today, just hyper-partisanship where you could appoint the craziest, wackiest Republican or you could argue uh, on the other side liberal and not and not really have any kind of check from, from the other side. And again, I, what, what bothers me about this is we're talking about a party that has complete control the federal government, right? Complete control of both houses of Congress and the presidency. We talked about this last week as it related to health care and my just really upset over the notion that they would sabotage when they themselves are in charge of everything and can't come to an agreement about the replacement is. I see this very similar. They knew, they set all this up. They did all the stuff uh, last year, uh, which clearly would upset and agitate Democrats. And then they nominate, as you said, Robert, an extremely conservative, knowing that they're going to produce this. And, and they can't get the 40, the votes, the 60 votes that they need to get to cloture. That's on them. Right, that's on their shitty governing, and so no, their approach. Let's just change the they, rules because they want the whole cake, and so of course it and, is. And the Heritage Foundation, the Koch Brother funded groups, they want a guarantee that everything they want in Supreme Court decisions will come out of this judge. So at the same time, you have Judge Gorsuch going through this hypocrisy that I would never talk about a case I might rule on. We all darn know there's no independence whatsoever, and so it it calls into question. Let me say something radical here. Oh. I mean, judiciary is not an independent branch of government that's a check on interpreting the law if it's simply an ideological political appointment. Then it's simply ratifying what a majority in Congress already says. And in fact, there's no point in having judiciary being the place that interprets our laws anymore once you do this. That's why the filibuster is so important. Shorna? So I, I think that a lot of this, you know, we've, we've seen how public outcry can pause things like the healthcare bill and we've seen how it can hold up nominations and things like that by putting public pressure onto our elected officials. What the public 
doesn't understand. I mean, this is a rule that happened in the Senate, right? Like, this is a legal thing that happened. So I think that the public is kind of like, well, if the Senate can do that, then I guess it's okay. And I don't think there's enough understanding about what this really means. And so maybe there is some sort of really sexy public education campaign, I got that I can't wait to run around parliamentary procedure. How nerdy would that be? It has to relate to outcomes, <laughs> so it has to relate to when Judge Gorsuch takes away their rights. Sure. Their However, but but I do think that there is sort of a um, a cloak over how these rules actually work, and that you know the the general public, like if I told my parents about this, they'd be like, "Yeah, that's really screwed up, but it's legal to do, so therefore they have a right to do it." Well, therein lies why the four headless horsemen of the apocalypse left, right? Correct. They, that is probably the broader dynamic that the Democrats find themselves in. But I think they deserve a lot of credit for willing to take this fight on, even though I think, Jorner, you're probably right. I, I'm, I don't know that we'll see the majority of the public support it the way they did healthcare, but that's okay. They need to use their capital occasionally. They're obviously, uh, the Republicans are not very popular right now. And so I think the Democrats could use some of their capital. And this issue is so important. And there will be a public education campaign uh, that is going to happen around this because it seems pretty clear as of we record today that this is going to happen. Robert? So from an historical perspective, I don't want to overstate it. The Supreme Court has been made horrendous decisions in the past. Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, separate but equal, just to name a few. But look at the difference from the middle of the 20th century, where we had a decline, right? Uh, yes, uh, just uh, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, uh, you know, appointed people who they thought they were friends to, their, to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Earl Warren, a, a, an Eisenhower appointment and the, and the head of the California Republican Party then leads the U.S. Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. And you don't see, and in fact, even a number of Nixon appointees became, were very independent, right? But we've now seen this trend towards, uh, they, wanna, they want, based on the record of the judge, a surety that they know how the judge will rule, which takes out any kind of legal kind of fig leaf you might have for the Supreme Court being an independent check, actually just interpreting the law. The last one they appointed Republicans, which they hate, which they're trying to prevent, was Justice Souter, who had, so, uh, Bush picked him. Bush Sr. because he had so little record, and then it turned out that he was much different than they thought. And so now they now they have the whole system perfected, and there's very there's little surprise what George Jorsic will do. And so he's not even really an independent justice. So why, why even have the pretense of them being an independent uh, interpreter of the law rather than just a political branch of government? Well, one thing that's assured here is we have to get out of here. we got to wrap this show up, and we want to thank everybody. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. So, Jorna. Matt. What are you doing this weekend? Um, knocking on doors. No, I don't oh. think so. That was last weekend, Jorna. You missed it. The election's over. Oh, are you too busy riding horses or something that you got <laughs> fell on your head? Knocking on doors. I'm, I'm going to knock on doors. I just get up and I knock doors. I do. I get up, I, I make phone calls, and I knock it's, doors. So, Jordan, it's going to be 60 plus It's going to be 60. What do you weekend? think I'm going to do this weekend? Are you going to be on a horse? I'm Excellent. going to be with our favorite horses. And, okay. And he, no concerts or anything of interest that uh, we should all be seeing? No, but I am on my countdown to Coachella. So, oh. in two weeks, I'll be in Palm Springs in the desert. Well, we're going to miss you You all will then. be here, and it'll be... Lovely. Actually, I think we're going to be in Washington, D.C. at that time. In fact, we'll be recording our po- uh, some podcast uh, 
uh, material from Washington D.C. You, you uh, want me to call you from like you know watching Kendrick Lamar? I I do <laughs> I do I don't know if Robert does. So Robert, what what's going on this weekend in your world of sunshine? Well, I'm heading down to Madison. Going to be hanging out with the Our Wisconsin Revolution folks and meeting with the chair of National Revolution, uh, Larry Cohen. And then I'm speaking, and Larry Cohen's the uh, the, the keynote speaker at this at the Wisconsin Labor History Society meeting in Madison, which is all day Saturday. And uh, my brother's coming. My nephew Delano is going to come with us Del. and stay over. It was a great citizen action volunteer. And Lou Sosa on our staff is moderating the panel I'm on. Excellent. And I think uh, I think Anna. Uh, Anna Dvorak, what our Milwaukee co-op organizer, has also got come. So we have lots of work to do in planning the revolution. And I finally figured out the horse thing with Jorna. Yeah. It's all a metaphor. She's not really at horse shows. She's looking for the leader who's going to ride in on a white horse and save us from Scott Walker. It's all metaphorical. False. False. <laughs> <laughs> I'm knocking on doors. So R- Robert is a very, very bright individual, as all of our <laughs> listeners know. He's, he is geographically challenged. I believe he once said he was going down to Green Bay. He's going <laughs> down to Madison. No, you're going out to Madison. Madison is over. directly west over. It's certainly not down. Well, there's a question if we live on a circle, whether there is down or up, but hey. Oh, very globe, good. Right? Excellent point. Okay. We so are off the rails. There's, there's no more up and down. Well, look, this weekend, uh, my wife is very fortunate. Uh, she's heading to Mexico, so I will be... With the boys by myself this week, uh, we got a doubleheader of baseball and Racine for Gabe. Uh, because of the wonderful weather, I believe it'll be the season opener about uh, two and a half weeks late. Uh, and then on Sunday, it is definitely the season opener for racing. We'll be in Pekin, Illinois. Uh, I will be with my son Ezra racing motorcycles and very much looking forward to spring springing this weekend with that we want to thank brian wildrich our producer who makes the podcast happen every week and we will see you next week here at the battleground wisconsin